Hi everybody and welcome back to this episode of Tea with Taylor. As I previously mentioned, I just finished the book Wealth, Poverty, and Politics by Thomas Sowell and I told you guys I was going to try and reiterate the points within the book. Of course, it's a little intimidating. As you can see, the book is very large. Just to give you, um, you know, some perspective, this is the book. It is 428 pages and this is just his references, notes, citations, you know. So I put together an outline of the main topics that he discusses as well as what I realized or thought was important as I read it. When I read something, I go back and take notes and I highlight as I read on what really stood out to me. So those are going to be the things that I'm going to try to communicate to you. Of course, I recommend reading it yourself. There's no way I can conceptualize and interpret and communicate everything that he says in the book, but I'm going to try my best. So bear with me. As I said, the book is called Wealth, Poverty, and Politics. In this book, Soul breaks down, and mind you, I'm gonna be, I have an outline to of the points on the computer, so if I my eyes kind of flicker back and forth, I'm just some girl in her living room. I don't have like a screen to read off a teleprompter. So bear with me, and hopefully you find it insightful and the information informative. So in this book, Soul kind of breaks down complex issues and patterns regarding wealth, poverty, and politics. He uses examples from all over the world, different ethnicities and different times throughout the world to try and dissect these complicated issues. And the brilliance in Seoul is that he's able to take these complex issues and explain them in such a basic, not really a basic way, but in a way that layman's like myself can understand. And I believe most people could, so you could too, if you take the time to read the book. Um, so the main topics he goes over, one being geographic factors, two cultural factors, three social factors, four political factors, and then he wraps up with his conclusion. Um, so I'm gonna break out each topic that he discussed in those those four categories, and then as well as the subcategories and that, I, that, that stood out to me. Of course, I'm not gonna be covering everything, and I will have some of my own commentary, so just know it's a little bit fluid. Um, so the book starts off with a quote from John Adams, facts are stubborn things. Whatever may be our wishes, our inclinations, our whatever, let me restart that. Facts are stubborn things. Whatever may be our wishes, our inclinations, or the, or the dictates of our passions, they cannot alter the state of facts and evidence. And like I said, that's by John Adams. So then as he goes into the book, he starts by talking about issues. And of course, a lot of these issues are what we talk about today and that we still argue about in a social setting, of course, starting with number one, inequality and disparities. And he mentions that inequality is the norm throughout human history. The absence of equality is not what needs to be explained. And what he's saying there is throughout all of human history, has there been inequality? So why we think it's so, at least here in America, that it's so strange that there's inequality he finds that to be the wrong question it's strange of like that's just not some the apps like he says the absence of equality is not what needs to be explaining um and he actually states that the prosperities of the united states is actually unique for example at the beginning of the 20th century which was not that long ago only 10 percent of americans had flushing toilets and only three percent of americans had electricity now compare that to today's standards. 
and compare American standards to other countries across the world. So the prosperity of the nations around the world, as well as countries' own boundaries, have changed over time. And many of us don't know world history, we don't even know American history, so it's hard for us to grasp that, or I, I don't even know if grasp, we just don't know that these things are fluid. They have changed so drastically over the course of history. And for example, ancient Greece, ancient Greece, which was home of the legendary philosophers, of course, that helped create Western civilization like Plato and Aristotle. At one time, at this time of ancient Greece, Britain was illiterate. And now come the 19th century, Britain was far more advanced than Greece and led the industrial revolution. That just shows you in just that time frame how much things have changed, as well as there was many imperialistic empires that are no longer today. So disparities in a country are regularly linked to time and place of causation, but it's not the full story. Correlation does not mean causation, which you'll see throughout this video that I try to explain to you. Um, these topics are much more complex and they hold much more nuance than politically convenient and emotionally satisfying. Then he goes into talking about the, the so first we did inequality, inequality, then he goes into rich versus poor. Um, and he says that we miss, really the essence of what makes something rich and poor in the conversation, production versus outputs. And he also says, he breaks down the argument of those who have seized more and then those who have been taken from. And one of these examples that he used is Spain and the Spaniards conquest. And I believe it was the 14th century, the 15th century. I didn't put the date in there, so I'm sorry. But Spain and the Spaniards conquest where Spain devastated much of Europe and they confiscated all that wealth. Now today, Spain is one of the poorer countries in Europe. And Sol goes on to explain that throughout the rest of the book that you can confiscate wealth from others or other countries, but you can't confiscate human capital. And human capital is the knowledge and the skills that allow for innovation, for development, and maintaining any sort of wealth, as well as just maintaining a country's prosperity or continued growth as a civilization. And he goes on to say that the economist Henry Holtz, quoted in the book, explained that the problem with the poor isn't distribution, but production. People and countries are not poor because of something being withheld from them, but because they are not producing. And that just is a good example of Spain, because even though they confiscated all this wealth and gold from all these other countries, they weren't able, they didn't have the human capital and they actually looked down on the working class. So they didn't put, they didn't produce anything. They didn't have anything else to offer. So that wealth, once it diminished, there was no human capital skills or innovations to keep the country wealthy in producing. So what happened? Like I said, Spain is now one of the poorer countries in Europe. So that just kind of gives you the first introduction of what this book is going to be about. He's going to break down the difference or what is maybe not all the causal effect, but definitely factors of disparities of rich versus poor. And he's going to break it down in these subjects that I explained to you, the four different topics, first being geographical factors. So let's go into some of the things that he discussed. Um, he shed lights on how geographical factors can affect countries or communities' capabilities in various ways. One of these ways being waterways. In the mid-19th century, before transcontinental railroads were built, San Francisco could be 
reached faster and cheaper from China than it could be reached from the Missouri River. Big cities, as you see around other countries or within a country, and big cities, nations, and prosperous nations, for the most part, are located in areas that have very convenient waterways, they're by oceans, rivers, banks, and lakes, which helps transportation of goods, communities, people. Um, and then he goes on to use examples of uh, areas that waterways have helped as well as hindered the prosperity. One of those being Africa. Africa, which is two times larger than Europe, has a smaller coastline making transportation difficult. And some of you guys were like, wait, what? But that's because Europe has a lot of twists and turns in their coastline making navig navigability somewhat easier. Um, and Africa also strugg struggles with convenient, reliable, effective waterways. For example, many of the rivers are shallow, so to have the capabilities to have big boats that are transporting goods is difficult. Um, oceans, obviously, there's many different oceans, and they differ, differ in their navigability as well as their fishing efficiencies or capabilities. So things like this affect a nation or a city or a community depending on where they're located. Of course, many of us don't even think about things like this, but Sol breaks it down, of course, in such a brilliant way. Uh, he goes on to discuss lands and obviously different types of lands and how they have affected the communities or countries around them. One of them being mountains and mountains have hindered, obviously they have hindrances in their transportation capabilities. They're more isolated societies and which causes an issue or, um, like a, yeah, an issue as far as transportation, education, and prosperity. And if you didn't know, 10% of the world's population lives in mountains, 90% of which is in Asia. Uh, then he goes on to say natural resources, which is obviously within the land, which are not resources unless and until human beings learn how to find them and process them, which we see in many countries that have that are rich in natural resources, but aren't rich prosperity. Like they aren't rich as a country because they don't have the means or the human capital, or they have a political system that doesn't allow them to take it, take advantage of the resources they have and then create wealth out of them. And I'm sure many of you guys could think of countries uh, that are in that situation, Venezuela, Russia, a lot of the, the Middle East. So then he goes on to discuss that among geographical factors are also to be considered climate, animals, and disease. Climate, which is not a fixed factor, don't let people fool you. And this is a little bit of a example for the environmental extremists. I'm not saying, I'm not even gonna get into that. But for example, the Sahara, the Sahara Desert was not always a desert. And there's tropical animal fossil, fossils have been found in areas too cold to survive today. Centuries and millennia are small fractions of the time that Earth has existed. And we must not confuse climate and weather. And climate has always changed, has always changed. As we know, there was once an ice age. So he also goes into discuss temperatures and how they are influenced by water. Of course, if you're located near water, your temperatures vary differently than if you're inland and how these climate zones have forced people to adapt to changing climates, which often led to them ha having or learning skills that other areas in more of a tropical climate wouldn't have. And one of these examples is that if you lived in a climate that you had a winter and a fall and you had seasons, 
people had to learn how to grow crops within certain time frames, as well as how to preserve them, teaching them self-discipline and the concept of saving and conserving perishables. So these people that adapted these skills then became more prosperous a lot of the times when they would go to tropical areas than the native borns because they had these additional skills that they had to learn due to their previous climate that they lived in and how they had to survive as far as growing food and you know just surviving in a constantly changing temperate zone he goes on to discuss animals and how certain parts of the world especially back in history when we didn't have as easily you know at trains and cars and planes well they really had to rely on their animals and so if a country lacked big beasts as far as animals well they lacked the ability for easily trans like easy transportation for people or goods or at least definitely those of heavy weight and then as well as diseases which has a large effect on Africa and much of their prosperity because cons the uh, Africa consists of a lot of wetlands that are not often cultivated because of its tropical diseases like malaria and river blindness. So in the end, it's not climate, soil, disease itself, but the combination of all of them that have that can affect an the interaction of these different geographical factors that can affect communities or countries. So that's just one thing that he goes over that affects, obviously, the situation within a country. Um, transportation and isolation. Throughout history, communities and societies have benefited from the, invent the inventions and knowledge of human capital of others. This has been done through transportation, goods, services, as well as migration from people of different areas of the world where they come together and bring their skills. And I would argue, obviously, that's a a lot of the reason why America has such prosperity. We have people from all over the world that bring their different cultures and their skills. And then together, we create a country that is so diverse, not only in ethnicities, but in knowledge. And he goes on to explain that knowledge and skills, as mentioned previously, natural resources are not resources until human beings have the knowledge to take advantage of those skills, find them and use them. Another thing that can affect a country is language barriers. Economically, language barriers can affect because if you have the inability to communicate with dominant economies like today, obviously the English language, if you're, if you're dealing with commerce, is important to learn why many other countries teach English. As well as cohesion by lacking the ability to communicate to one another, people around you, that can cause friction within communities and especially certain areas being tribal if they can't communicate to one another well a lot of that that's where a lot of the tension and friction comes within a country or within communities and an example that he uses again being africa 50 percent larger than europe but it has nine times the amount of languages and of course it's very large in the amount of countries but it has so many languages which is a lot of the reason part of the reason why Africa has some of the complications that it does. So that's kind of the first part as far as geographical factors go. Then he continues on to part two, which is culture and economics. And he explains culture and economics, customs, values, attitudes, and talents equal human capital. Um, so first, which I think is very important, he says environment. And he makes 
a point to say define it and a lot of the people that i listen to that are intelligent they're very cautious about their words and they always make an effort to define the the terminology that is being used to make sure that they and the people they're te- you know speaking to or listening to are talking about the same thing and i feel like that that's missing a lot in our in our conversations we don't even know if we're talking about the same thing so he makes a very he makes a point to define environment and he says environment should be defined as what is going around a group plus what is going within a group creating groups have different cultures beliefs priorities habits etc and these factors are just or more influential in culture as the surrounding writ large and and ex- obviously that is true. So it matters, of course, what's going on around you as far as your city or your state, but what's going on in your schools, in your community, in your house, that matters. That is part of environment. So he, he makes a point to say that when we're speaking about environment, we're speaking about the home too. We're not just speaking about the, the area, the proximity. And he goes on to explain different cultures that have succeeded versus others here in America, one of them being Cuban Americans, where doctors and lawyers came from, fled Cuba to come to America for a better life. And they started working as dishwashers and delivering newspapers. They had a very humble culture. And this exodus began in 1959. And by 1990, their children were making more than $50,000 a year twice as frequently as white Americans. So their their culture within themselves really affected their success in the country. And my cat's going a little crazy. Um, and then additionally, he, he discussed Britain and Italian immigrants versus Spain immigrants in Argentina. And in 1864 to 1914, Britain and Italian immigrants, again, versus Spain immigrants to Argentina. Many Italian immigrants, like Cuban immigrants, started as peasants and worked their way up to the middle class, and they had a very hard-working culture, and they were willing to take hard jobs, and they saved their money. And so they had a humble culture, and they ended up succeeding over those of the Spain immigrants in Argentina. And Argentina in the mid-20th century was ranked one of the top prosperous nations over Germany and, and France, but their disastrous class warfare policies by Juan Perón reserved this progress. Simba, get down. And um, he goes on to explain in the book that they started doing a class warfare. When the Italian immigrants were succeeding, they were starting to implement policies against them, which actually drove down the prosperity of the whole of Argentina as a whole, not just the Italian immigrants. Um, a good, another good example is Jews exodus from many places, but Jews, the culture within them um, and the way that they're raised and the priorities that they have ultimately lead most of the people from that community to be very successful. Um, he goes on to explain cultural differences, absorbing good productive aspects of culture, of other cultures into your own life brings prosperity and is beneficial to help countries evolved. Like I said, that's why I think America is so prosperous. We bring so much from everywhere. Um, And the refusal to absorb other cultures and outright ban their influences has crumbled crumbled nations. For example, China in the early 15th century imposed restrictions on the outside world. They at this time had ships more sophisticated than Columbus when he came to America, which was in the obviously 
more than he came into America, but the leader at that time destroyed all the ships and forbid any other voyages. He thought that the, their country didn't need any exotic creatures or things from the outside world. Well, what happened to China? It fell, obviously, and it was one of the, the poorest countries and it failed because of the isolation and these, these this leadership politically, and they're only now catching up 600 years later. So those can have real big effects. Another example that I thought was really interesting was Arabs and books. There are far less books that are translated into Arabic than any other language hindering their depth of knowledge. Of course, because you, you, can, you can read a book of, in so many books and have knowledge of so many different topics and various, uh, various things. And the example he uses is 300 million people across 20 countries, the Arab, yet only one fifth the number of books compared to Greece, which is a much smaller country. And obviously this is 20 countries. Spain has translated more books annually than Arabs have in 1,000 years. And lastly, his last example of this, of absorbing cultures that are good, well, then in Black America today, when they speak proper English, they're accused of acting white, which can hinder either them wanting to do that or their ability. It's, it, it's good to speak proper English and to be cohesive within a community to succeed. Um, then... Carrying on to culture and progress. Economic progress depends on both tangible, tangible and intangible factors. And then he, of course, defines it. Tangible being geographical and existing physical wealth and intangible, intangible being human capital. One of these intangible factors of human capital being trust and honesty, which is needed in a country in order to be prosperous. And a good example of this is like, eBay and just online commerce, we do the transaction to trust that what we're paying for is what we're getting. And if it's not, then we're not, they're not going to be successful for very long because people aren't going to pay that. And I thought an, inter an interesting examples that he listed was Russia, which may be one of the most rich countries in, term in terms of natural resources, but it's very corrupt as far as businesses crumble and trade is limited. And then compare that to Japan, who is limited natural resources, but is very prosperous, innovative, and trustworthy. And they, in um, someone did, I didn't list exactly who did it, but they did a wallet experiment where they would leave wallets in certain countries and see how often they were returned. And America had a 67% return rate. Stockholm had 70%. Denmark and Norway had 100%, so they're very trustworthy nations. And then Mexico had 21%. Then another example that they used that I thought was interesting was parking tickets in New York City when they had the UN members come. Egypt had nearly 1,000 unpaid tickets. Every ticket that they've ever had, they never paid versus Canada and Britain who paid off every single ticket that they ever received. So human capital is, of course, what we also said in the form of skills. And he puts emphasis that skills is different than education. Inventors like Edison had little education. The Wright brothers were high school dropouts. Gates and Dell were college dropouts. And I don't believe Elon Musk ever went to college or he was a dropout. So just showing that just because you have degrees doesn't mean you have skills. And we see that a lot today that people are obtaining a lot of skills. Like America has given out more I mean, obtaining a lot of degrees and lacking skills. We have given out more degrees, but we have a society that lacks skills and the ability to like live real life, which we're seeing. And he goes like, what does that cultivate? 
Well, that cultivates people acquiring academic degrees without learning actual life skills in a large portion of the population becoming one, disappointed, two, resentful, three, negative impact and danger on society. And they are educated and unemployed. And then many of them get government jobs that are taxpayer funded and they're resentful, resentful towards the system. And what does that happen? I mean, it causes what we're seeing today in our society, trying to tear down the system. Symbol. Okay. Yeah, sorry. That's my cat like likes to get into everything. I might add to this out, but he's being a little shit. Uh, okay, <laughs> now he's biting me because he wants to play. <laughs> Are you serious? All right, sorry about that. Um, like I said, I'm just some girl in her living room. <laughs> okay. So, historically, societies ha that have distasteful attitudes towards the working class have failed, which is what scares me today that people with these graduated degrees look down on those who have actual skills or these blue-collar workers that help the country function. And to go back, of course, like what we referenced at the beginning of this video is Spain. And they had a really aristocrat society who thought that the work was beneath them. And like I told you, they obtained all this wealth from these countries, but they weren't willing to work. So they weren't able to sustain it. Another example of this being North and South in America, because the North, which were free states where they had more people and the human capital and adapting skills and knowledge versus the Southern states of slavery, where um, they obviously had slaves and they had little to no skills in the slave owners, little to no skills. And they thought the work was beneath them. They thought it was to keep to the slaves, which is why the South delayed prosperity. And after the Civil War, Americans from the North then relocated to the South to help develop it and to give people education and to develop these skills. And this situation is thought to a lot of people as the switch in regards to voting, when really it was a switch in migration into people. So, but I digress on that point. Just wanted to, that's somewhat interesting, I would say. Uh, so that was part two of how he breaks things down. Then going into part three, which is social factors. The simplest answers are not the most accurate, are not always the most accurate, and one can lead to disastrous and inhumane behaviors. And that's a direct quote from the book, as I'm sure you thought. So he first starts by saying population. Um, obviously one of the simplistic forms that have been talked about before is genetic determinism and he makes the point that this is very so this is a, an evil avenue to go towards it ends up leading into nazi germany also population control which equals which has equated to genocide genocidal history of killing of newborn babies especially girls creating sex imbalance of populations where then they had multiple wives and and in areas like this it's happened in india and china and that he states that there actually is no example that the more people equal greater poverty. And he goes on to explain demographic composition, age. The older a population is, typically the more prosperous they are because they lived more experiences, especially now that we are more of a technological society that people earn higher wages in a later date of their life. So an example within the United States, Japanese average age is two decades older than Puerto Rican Americans. Therefore, people typically make, because they typically make more at an older age, Japanese 
have an average earnings higher than that of Puerto Ricans. And he goes on to explain, of course, that the way people are raised play a big role, as we kind of touched on earlier, that your environment within your household. And so he goes into explaining the people that the way that people are raised, education of family and how many words are spoken per hour, books being available at the home, two parent household versus single mothers, all these play a role in the prosperity or the future success and livelihoods of, of the children or the people within that household. Um, mobility, external versus internal obstacles. Mobility meaning the opportunity to move upward in a society's upward movement. Equal opportunity is not the same thing as equal probability. Low income immigrants in America tend to do better over generations versus native born low income America and the Americans. And that's because their culture, what they, their priorities, what they believe to be important, their work ethic. And he says that 70% of Americans will be in the top 20% at one point in their life. So he goes on to explain that privilege versus achievement, which I think we're missing in the conversation of public discourse today. The word privilege is used very loosely and is adamantly on a basis of demographic diversity or political expediency. Achievement is acquiring a valuable skill to do these and other things that benefit others rather than privilege that only benefits the person. He goes on to explain that affirmative action actually hurts minorities. So example, Berkeley College, the number of black students being admitted in the 1980s increased, yet the number of black graduates decreased because of affirmative action. And why is that? Because they were taking people not based off their intellectual capabilities, but off their skin color. And so once affirmative action was banned, graduates actually rose 55% and the average grade point average rose 63% because those of the minority class that were taken into the school actually should have been there. And so he go, there's a lot of things that he discusses on affirmative action that you can look up and I highly suggest you doing so because we need to really look at the results of some of these policies and what is it actually helping the people it's intended to do because then a lot of the times it's not. And so it's all virtue signaling, which leads me to the last factor, which is four political factors. And the pace of national development is where he starts off. The lack of cohesion in a language and unity offer little hope for development, which we kind of mentioned in the previous segments that we covered. Then he goes on to talk about slavery. In a world largely free of slaves today, it may be hard to realize that slavery was an almost universal institution for thousands of years. If we could argue one thing, it would be the most the thing that's touched almost every part of the world has been slavery. Again, another topic that is purposefully spoken about that way in America to cause division um, because of course great, uh, slavery was America's gravest sin. And that's not to say that it wasn't and that's not to diminish the inhumane evils that happened during that time, but to also acknowledge that it happened all around the world. So it's not unique to America. What is unique to America is her freedoms and liberties and prosperity. 
So he goes on to just list some facts about slavery. China in centuries past being one of the largest and most comprehensive market, India has been estimated to have more slaves than that of the entire Western hemisphere. In 1776, when the US was formed, Western Europe was the only part of the world where slavery was abolished altogether. Over centuries, developing nations with large armies reduced the number of places that slavery could be raided um, because it, they would always confiscate. They would raid countries and areas and then take their people and enslave them. Well, once your army and you, you had a more sufficient, sustainable, strong army, it you know prevented people from doing that because they weren't going to be able to confiscate your people and take you over once you had the ability to fight back. So... He goes on to explain that nations enslaved, enslaved other nations, society took over and enslaved other weaker societies. Another example he used, again, being Africa, Sub-Sahara Africa, which consisted of many vulnerable societies were raided and enslaved by other Africans. Then as international commerce expanded and transportation became easier and it became more economically feasible to transport slaves, they then sold their slaves over to North America, creating a racial, like a racial difference between slave and dominant, which was prevalent, obviously, in early America. Uh, he goes on to again to list some additional facts: being private, uh, privates, pirates enslaved one million Europeans between 1500 and 1800, more than the number of African slaves transported to the United States. The Ottoman Empire enslaved Europeans. Societies around the world had slavery. It was the Western society that was the first to turn against slavery in the 19th century. Brazil was the last of the Western countries, which ended slavery in 1888. And some societies in the Middle East and Africa with slavery throughout the 19th and 20th century and still remain having slavery today. Um, so the claim that slavery was the basis for the prosperity in the United States is false, which he goes on to explain in more detail. The South, which is where slavery was concentrated for the most part, was the, or where it was concentrated, was the poorest region for centuries, both black and white. The South was under development in skill, education, and freedom, lacking the human capital. And only after slavery was abolished was the rise of the United States in the industrial, in the industri as an industrial power, which was primarily derived out of non-Southern states. And then after the, uh, the, uh, the abolition of slavery, the North and those of the Northern Americans and others came from those areas with their skills to then develop the Southern states, bringing their skills and education, like, like we kind of discussed earlier. And that was kind of the migration of people that changed throughout the United States once slavery was abolished. He goes on to talk about political politics and diversity and that the whole culture of the country can be altered and destroyed by, by the arrival of people who don't respect it. And that politicians who play class warfare and many other Divide and conquer is what they say, right? They want to divide the people to conquer power within themselves. And he goes on to say that the role of government can be, can, and the government can force or prohibit particular acts, but that is not the same thing as accomplishing larger purposes. Politics can create and exacerbate tensions. For example, Germany in 1930s and 40s was actually known as an accepting society, and then Hitler and they caused divert or not diversity they caused um they caused division through 
against the Jews and everyone knows what happened in Germany of course and the knowledge of the government will always and then he goes on to explain that they they act like they know so much more than everyone else and they are the ones that should take and control everyone and dictate your life but the knowledge of those in government is will always be inferior to all of the individuals of the nation combined the brains of all of us are smarter than the few morons in government okay and then once the government and then he goes on to explain that once government agency is created it ain't going anywhere they will not want to solve the problem that they are forcing down the throats of all their people because they don't want to cut, get cut funding, employment, remove, removal of jobs. In one of his books he, books, he actually talks about he was, I don't know where he was working or volunteering or not volunteering. Um, I don't know. He was talking about something and he, this is where he discovered that the minimum wage is actually hurtful. And he, he brought it up in some sort of meeting of some sort. And they were like, ooh. He actually, he, he caught on, like, you're not supposed to say that. They know that it's hurtful, but it's politically beneficial to them. So they don't want to solve the problem. They like to have these problems and these issues because they just wage it against all of us. They let us fight it out and then they hope to get power in the end. And so the political incentives of, of a lot of these policies is really just for the politicians. It's they don't really care about you, okay? Like, stop thinking the government cares about you. And that these political incentives like anti-discrimination is likely to expand over time and grow to be discriminate, which we see today with affirmative action and that they're actually being racist. The, the, the anti-racists are actually racist. So another example being quotas and affirmative action, which results in the crumbling of competence of a society when you're just choosing people based off the color of their skin and not the content of their character or their competence. So Lord only knows where that will lead us. And it's the bigotry of low expectations that we can't hold everyone to the same standards, that we must bring standards down to others because we think that they're incapable to live up to the standards of us. And let me tell you, that's racist. So look out for the anti-racist because they're typically the racist. And then lastly, we're gonna discuss the welfare state before we wrap up with his conclusion. And he starts by saying, all men are created equal. Doesn't mean all men are created equal in possessions, ability, or in merit that people have different skills, people have different capabilities. You will never have equality. We'll never have it. Now that doesn't mean that there isn't room for improvement. So, but he goes on to explain that poverty in America, more than half of the Americans in the bottom 20% of the income bracket don't have a single person working in the family. The poor in the US has more social problems as far as culture and priorities versus materialistic problems. The poor in the U.S. can be compared to Mexico's middle class. We, we really lack perspective in this country that even our impoverished, and I'm not saying that they don't have hard lives, but on a global scale are living very well. And I'll go over some statistics um, in a little bit to, to reflect on that. And then he goes on to say progress and retrogression. And he specifically speaks upon the 1960 Civil Rights Act and how that time in our history actually crumbled the black culture because we married people to the government because the government was going to come help them and 
it's it's fascinating that we really don't pay attention to the results of what those policies did to the black communities. So for example, in 1940, 87% of black families lived below the poverty level. In 1960, that 87% declined, declined to 40%. That's over a 50% decline in only two decades. And that's before these welfare, welfare programs were instituted. From 1916 to 1980, the black, the black poverty level only dropped by 18%, running off still the programs before the welfare state. And then obviously we see today that blacks were actually doing better before that time than now. And the 1965 Civil Rights Act followed by riots, ghettos, homicide, broken homes, and the majority of the black children being born out of wedlock. There's a report which is um, in the 1920s, I believe it was about 20% of the black of black children were born out of redlock. And this was this was not okay. This was like red red flag alarm. We need to solve this problem today. It's 74% of, I believe it's 74, 71 or 74% of black children are born out of wedlock. Of course, this is an issue across whites too, but he's just speaking specifically to that. And statistics show that you are more willing or more able to succeed or have a better chance of succeeding if you have a two-parent household. So the welfare state created broken families by incentivizing mothers to marry themselves to the government to receive more money. You receive more money if the dad wasn't home. The legacy of welfare state has made generations of indoctrination, making them helpless, subsidized economically, counterproductive, and create socially destructive lifestyles. Creates a dependency voting constituency for the politicians, which they like. Paranoid, they're paranoid, they're resentful, and they make it easy to take advantage of their emotions, which we see all the time. If you're easily, if you're very emotional, you're easily manipulated. And this creates also a trap. The welfare state is a trap because the government gives you just enough to survive off of. And then the minute you start doing a little bit better and making some money for your, your life, they pull it. So people are like stuck. Do I stay on this just enough to survive? Because the minute I work, they pull it away from me and it really does cause a trap within these communities, which is, is quite devastating. And then we're gonna wrap up with part five, the conclusion. So as he says, there isn't the reason for disparities among countries and within countries. Rather, there are many reasons and some combined together cause the effects that we see today. Equality hasn't been available for all of human history. Neither has prosperity. What we see today is a miracle <laughs> comparing to world history. Disparities, gaps, inequalities are noted as strange by today's standards or even sinister, yet they are the norm throughout human history. Prosperity is not. Culture, geog uh, geography, politics, and human capital are all factors that play a role. Income statistics, and another thing is income statistics, when they speak about the poor versus the rich, are skewed because they talk about this as a fixed group of people, but really we should know that these people change over time. It's fluid. You go from one income bracket to another throughout the, 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 you know, the lifespan of American. And the 1%, 20%, you know, they fall... They fail to mention that group, these groups of people are constantly changing. So don't give in to just the 1% or the 20%. And then, as we kind of said earlier, production is typically missing from these discussions. The question should be asked, if those who make less 
are producing less or are they producing anything at all? Mutual transactions of individuals should not be intervened by third parties that are armed with the government power taking away the freedoms and individuals from us. We should be able to buy and sell and develop as we so choose, not having the government dictate how we should do it in what they would cause, what they would say, because of equality. That's what they use as an excuse to take away your freedoms and control your lives. And I guess lastly, before we wrap up, the goal of this book is to be guided by principles, judged by validity of achievements and cost, and then by its results. It would be difficult to find an example where the working class people had, a, had as high of a standard of living in a communist country as that of the working class people in number of capitalist countries. The legacy of slavery is used as an excuse and as an exemption. The United States is unique in the amount of charity it gives through private philanthropy. Correlation does not mean causation. It may be a factor, but it does not mean that it is the cause. And some data may convey certain outcomes, but it doesn't mean that it caused it. So as I said, I was going to mention some stats so we can just get some perspective of how great America actually is. In 1990, 10% of the of Americans had flushing to toilets first 98% in 1997. That's only a seven year difference. 3% had ele um, electric lighting versus 99% in 1997. 8% had central heating in 1990 versus 93% in 1997. 165 per 1,000 infant mortality rate in 1990 versus 7 per 1,000 in 1997. In 1910, 1% had automobiles versus 83% in 1983. In 1900, 5% had a phone versus 83 in 1970. So we need to have some perspective, even though, of course, we're not perfect. No one's perfect, but we need to have some perspective and come to the realization equality is an impossibility. So stop allowing people to sell you this. It's a lie and they know it's a lie, but they're able to manipulate you and take advantage of your emotions to give themselves more power. And I will close with two quotes that he kind of closed with. An even more dangerous illusion is that the undoubted fairness, unfairness of life chances is reason to give politicians ever more control of a nation's resources and even more power over individual lives. The idea that those who have less can be presumed to be victims of those who have more is an idea whose consequences have a world history written in the bloodshed of millions. So hopefully I kind of explained the main topics and the sub you know this the information that he portrayed in this book like i said there's a lot i didn't get to hopefully i came off somewhat coherent <laughs> and i hope you found it useful so i recommend reading it yourself but this was the book wealth poverty and politics by thomas soul and thank you for watching if you're interested in learning any other things check out my other videos and thanks again for watching god bless